Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're just carrying on. Lord willing, we'll make some great progress in the book of Mark this morning because we have two uh, paragraphs, two, you can call them pericopes, maybe it's a technical term, but two paragraphs that deal with the same topic. So we're going to handle them together uh, and cover quite a bit of ground. We're actually going to get into chapter 3 this morning. I know. Progress. The title of today's message is The Lord of Rest. The Lord of Rest. We're going to see that Jesus gives himself a a title along these lines in the passage for today. We're going to consider an aspect of who Christ is that I think is often overlooked, uh, but is very important. That Jesus is the Lord of rest. And it's going to take us a moment to get to that theme, but when we do, I think it will be an encouragement to you. As we continue through Mark chapter 2, we're going to continue to see this bigger theme of opposition being built in Mark's gospel. He wants to show us, in chapter 1, he showed us Christ's authority, he showed us the new teaching of Christ. He showed us who Jesus is in in great description with some very powerful words. But then in chapter 2, he's showing us that Jesus, with his radical new teaching, is certainly facing opposition. There are those who are entrenched in their ways. They think they're good enough. They think that uh, their law law keeping is good enough. And they've decided that uh, we don't need anything else. So when a radical new teacher comes on the scene... Uh, these people are upended and they oppose and they conspire and we'll see them doing that even today. But I think as we look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees who seem to be his primary opponents, I think we'll see a little bit of ourselves in them. Because the Pharisees' main issue was self-sufficiency. The Pharisees' main issue was pride. And how often do we allow the sin of pride to sneak its way into our lives? And suddenly we're operating as though we are sufficient and we are enough and we know best. When in reality, the wisdom of God and his ways are so much higher. And we have so much room to grow and we need Christ so much every day. Pharisees were proud. They were self-sufficient. They offer this opposition to Christ. But before we pass too much judgment on them, let's first judge ourselves. We talked last week about how the Pharisees, uh, as they accuse Jesus, as they oppose Jesus, they're really struggling with the sin of legalism. We talked about how legalism can refer to a person who believes that their standing before God is completely dependent on their own works. But we also talked about the fact that legalism also can refer to a person who sets their own personal standards. And we talked about how personal standard setting is a great thing to do. But a legalist is a person who sets their own personal standards and decides that my standard must be God's standard. And anybody else who doesn't set the standard where I set my standard cannot please God. Now, how much more proud could you possibly be than to say, I know what God has decreed, 
but here are my decrees, and my decrees are better. We're going to see the Pharisees, they're going to bring a legalistic charge against Jesus Christ today. In order to properly address the issue of legalism as we see it in the Gospels, we are going to systematically, as we go through the book of Mark, touch on a complex theological issue. Excuse me. <clears throat> and that theological issue is, what do we do with the law in the age of grace? What do we do with the law in the age of grace? It's a shame that this topic has been such a point of contention. Certainly we know that this topic has beleaguered Christians for millennia. Wars have been fought over this question. Churches have been split. Uh, several epistles have been written to address falsehoods on this issue. You'll see epistles in the New Testament that were written to combat one extreme, which is legalism and the Judaizers, and then you'll see epistles written to confront the other extreme, which is license, which is taking Christ's grace as an opportunity to just do whatever you want. So we've seen divisions, we've seen epistles written, we've seen wars fought, we've seen theological treatises, uh, numbers of them, probably countless of them, being written on this issue. What do we do with the law today? What do we do with the law in an age of grace? Certainly that's not a question we'll fully answer today, but it's an important question to ask as we consider the theological topic of today's passage. And I understand that there are people in this room who may have no idea what I'm talking about. So I think, as I prepared the message for today, I thought a lot of this is going to fall on deaf ears unless I start with a little, we'll call it, theological context. What is the issue at hand? What are we dealing with? Because if you just read today's passage without any theological context, you would probably not have any idea what they're talking about at all. So let's, let's keep it very simple. Let's... let's give context to our discussion of law and grace, uh, license, legalism, and all these words. In the Old Testament of your Bible, which is obviously written first, which is why it's called the Old Testament, there, especially in the first five books of the Old Testament, God's expectations for his people are laid out. We call this the law. It's not a man-made law, it is God's law, and it is good. It reveals to us who God is and what he expects of his people. Within the law, and there are a lot of laws, that you could kind of categorize them based on what they are dealing with. Some of the laws in the Old Testament deal with moral issues. Some would call this the moral law or the moral aspect of the law, these are God's views on ethical things. What should people do? What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is bad? God wants there to be an objective standard for right. So certainly there are things that we would call moral law. M much of the Ten Commandments, think of the ones you know, don't kill. That is a moral imperative. It is universal. Don't steal. Again, moral imperative. Universal. If you continue to read through the law, though, you'll also notice that there are some laws that are ceremonial. These were meant to demonstrate who God is through the peculiarities of His people, 
Israel. Many of these are relegated to the practice of Israel, and many of these laws are not practiced by believers today because we are not Israel. Israel is a separate thing. You could categorize under ceremonial laws things like the sacrificial system. Some people categorize things a little differently, but you could put into this category uh, some of the unique laws that were simply just to set the people of Israel apart and to show who God is, like don't the people of Israel were not allowed to wear mixed clothing. So you couldn't have a 50-50 wool cotton blend. I'm not even sure if that's something you can do. Is that something you can do? I don't know. But you couldn't do it under the law because it was to show that God is pure and God is separate. It wasn't a moral issue. It was a ceremonial issue specifically for God's people Israel. Also, as you read through the law, you'll notice that some laws don't deal with moral issues and don't really deal with ceremonial issues. They deal with civil issues. Okay, The nation of Israel was governed uh, originally and was intended to be governed as a theocracy. Totally unique in the history of mankind that this nation was under the direct rule of God. Though they had at times kings or judges, those kings and judges were answerable and communicated directly with God Himself. But here's the thing, if you have a nation of sinful people living together, you're going to have to have some rules that just have to do with the day-to-day of being a nation. So you'll have in the law certain things that just have to do with the government in Israel. And they're very technical, and you'll notice that a lot of them have to do with finances and things like that. So you'll see in the law all of these different kinds of laws, okay? You'll see things that are moral laws. They show God's view of right and wrong. You'll see things that are God's ceremonial law. Set Israel apart as a peculiar people to show God's uniqueness to the world. Then you have things that are civil laws, just kind of common sense things for Uh, let's say, crime and punishment or financial matters or things like that. The keeping up of Israel. So the Jews, they lived under the law for millennia. And quite frankly, what God's people Israel found living under the law is that it was hard. It was very difficult. In fact, it was impossible. The hundreds of laws that God had given to His people as they strived to keep them, as they strived to offer the right sacrifices and and do the right thing and, and, and obey all these civil government things, they found that they just kept failing time and time again. And if you read the Old Testament, the gist that you'll get is that people aren't very good at keeping God's law. In fact, they're really, really bad at it. And there's this This desire that we have as we read Israel and the story of them trying to keep God's law, and we think there's got to be a solution. And hopefully the solution isn't just God wipes everybody out because they can't be good. Fortunately, we know from the very beginning of Scripture that that wasn't God's solution. We know that God's solution was to send someone who could fulfill the law who could keep all the laws that you and I never could, that the people of Israel never could, someone who could live perfectly and then pass that righteousness on to everyone else, who like a robe being put on your shoulders would put his righteousness to your account. We know, of course, that that person is Jesus Christ. The perfect substitution who imputes his righteousness to us. Jesus 
came. That's what the book of Mark is all about. And when he came, he did some radical things that upended the views of a lot of people who had been trying for a very long time to keep a very complicated law. And in doing so, in teaching, in, in demonstrating true righteousness, God, Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. You could never please God. I could never please God. The Jews could never please God. But Jesus made us right with God. So for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and who have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, the question still stands, what do we do with the law? What do we do with the law? Now, do we say, because Jesus has come, the first two-thirds of your Bible, you can just rip out so you don't have to carry that weight around anymore, and you can just set that aside because we don't need it anymore. Unfortunately, there are people who, though they might never say this, treat their theology this way. They do all New Testament theology, and they never think about what God has said in the Old Testament. The fact of the matter is that Jesus would say uh, several times when questioned that the law was not to be put away, that it still was good, that it still was useful. But what do we do with the law? Do we rip it out of our Bibles? Do we just say, uh, well, now that I'm not going to hell and I know my sins are forgiven, I'm just going to live however I want and follow my flesh and do whatever I feel like doing? Do we take the law and strive to follow every letter, living constantly in anxiety that if I don't, God will not approve of me? What do we do with the law? As we look at the passage, and I know this is a lot of introduction, I just feel that you're not, we are not going to be on the same page unless we all are thinking of this correctly. As we look at the passage today, we're going to see a part of this answer, a glimpse into what we do with the law. And again, there's so much of the New Testament deals with this topic. We're going to see Jesus, and we're going to see him doing something that is highly controversial. And we're going to see him, through that controversial action, teach us something about God's view of the law and what Christ is doing through the law. Today's discussion will center around a unique law. It happens to be in the Ten Commandments. We'll notice if you look at the New Testament that every one of the, New Test of the uh, Ten Commandments will be reaffirmed and reinstated as G by Jesus as good and profitable, except for this one. In fact, every discussion in the New Testament of this law will give qualifications explanations and exceptions to this law every time and it's important for us to look at how jesus is treating this law so that we can understand more about god's view of the law in the age of grace this law if you haven't already guessed is the law of the sabbath the law of the sabbath if you memorize the ten commandments uh, maybe as a child maybe as an adult you know that in the Ten Commandments it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor, and it names all the people in the household. Okay. That, that seems like a very direct command from God. And we're going to see Christ be accused of breaking this command 
And we're going to see his response, and his response is not necessarily what you would expect it to be. So what is the Sabbath day? Again, we haven't got to the passage yet. We will in just a moment. The Sabbath, the word Sabbath, very simply means rest. And the idea of Sabbath was not relegated just to the seventh day of the week. There were many intentional rests that the people of Israel would have observed, and they were all called Sabbath, but there was a Sabbath every week. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It was a mandatory rest. Theologically, we actually see the first example of the Sabbath long before the writing of the law. We see it in the first story of the Bible, in the story of creation. We see that God, for six days of creation, speaks things into existence. He forms man out of the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils, excuse me, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. For six days, God works. For six days, God creates. But the seventh, God rested. God rested. He ceased from work. And what did he do when he rested? He was with his creation. He drew near to his creation. As we see the idea of Sabbath developed in the Old Testament, especially in the law, those two principles will apply to the Sabbath. They will define it. The Sabbath would be a day to cease from work and to draw near to God. It was both of these things. Now, the exact observance of the Sabbath would change as they passed through the ages, uh, especially how the drawing near to God aspect of it would work. Eventually, it would become regular trips to uh, the synagogue to be with God's people. But the principle of Sabbath remained the same. It was a time to rest. It was a time to draw near to God. In the law, the Jews were required to cease from their work on the seventh day. It was not Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. The Sabbath day would have begun at sundown on Friday and would have ended at sundown on Saturday. For them, it was the seventh day of the week that they observed Sabbath. And during that time, they could do no work. They could do no business. But I I don't think we should think of it that way. I think of it as not that they could do no work and that they could do no business, but that they didn't have to. They were permitted by God to rest from their labor so that they could draw near to Him. We're going to see that clarification given by Jesus in just a moment. In the passage today, the Jewish leaders known as the Pharisees accuse Jesus of breaking this law and He will clarify for them the purpose of it and who's in charge of it. Mark chapter 2, verse 23, we got there. Ten minutes later, we finally got to the passage. But I think all of that is going to drive us to a great understanding of this passage. Mark 2, 23 says, And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. Very apropos for a message in October. Jesus going into the cornfields. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of of corn. We're going to pause as we read through this and I'm going to make some notes to help us understand it better. 
The issue at hand is not that the disciples were taking corn from somebody else's field. The law actually explicitly states that this was allowed. As long as you didn't use a reaping instrument and as long as you didn't bring a vessel to carry away a harvest, you could go into your neighbor's field and pick food for you to eat. This was a way in the law that God kept people from starving to death. You could go into a field, you could pick what you needed for that day. So this is not the issue. There's another issue at hand, and the issue is that they are doing this on the Sabbath. Verse 24, And the Pharisees said unto him, that's Jesus, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? That's quite an accusation. Actually, in the Old Testament, the penalty for violating the Sabbath could be, depending on the circumstances, death. Quite a serious accusation for these people to come and say to Jesus that his disciples, under his authority, are violating the Sabbath. Verse 25, He said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and wasn't hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him? Wait a minute. How does Jesus' argument here apply to the accusation that's being leveled against him? He refers to kind of an obscure story from the historical books of the New Testament about King David eating some bread he was not supposed to eat. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this because what Jesus is doing here is profound. Verse 27, And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1, And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. On this particular Sabbath day, Jesus is doing all kinds of controversial things. And actually, in my opinion, this seems his actions here seem to be a response to the fact that the Pharisees are following him around on the Sabbath trying to catch him violating the Sabbath law. So what's he going to do? He's going to go to the most public place with the most Jews and he's going to do a work on the Sabbath day. Verse 3, And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, that's the Pharisees, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? It's a really good question. In fact, it's so good that they held their peace. And when he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth, and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I want us to consider for a moment what Jesus says about the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath. We're going to compare and contrast the position of the legalists and the position of the Lord. 
the legalists, as they come to accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath day, they purport or they seem to have an understanding that the Sabbath was given as a burden to the people. In fact, we know from history and from rabbinic writings that the Pharisees had actually gone out of their way to make the Sabbath harder to observe. They thought that the Sabbath was a great opportunity to separate the men from the boys when it came to spirituality. So what did they do? They wrote at least 39 extra rules that are not in Scripture to govern the observance of the Sabbath. And when they wrote those rules, they expected that everyone else would have to keep the rules like they do, or else you really couldn't please God. Remember our discussion of legalism? Unless you keep my standard, you can't please God like I do. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They make up new rules about the Sabbath. They add in a bunch of things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And then they say, everybody has to do this. And if you don't, you're not pleasing God. Or at least you're not pleasing God like we do. They believed that the Sabbath was given to be a burden to the people to demonstrate their holiness. They made the Sabbath a difficulty rather than a blessing. <clears throat> they also believed that because the Sabbath was a burden and because Jesus was just a man, that Jesus must serve the Sabbath. He must subordinate himself not only to God's law of Sabbath, but to their standards of Sabbath. So when they, <coughs> excuse me, when they ask this question, and when they level this accusation against Jesus, the implication is, you must serve our understanding of this law. They are saying, how could this rabbi claim to preach the truth of God and live with such low standards? Doesn't he know how the really holy people do it? And because of that, the Pharisees said, we judge Jesus. We stand in judgment of, of what Jesus is doing. What an awkward position to be in. To go and accuse and judge the Lord of all creation. But that's what they're doing. I don't want to dwell too long in the Pharisees' position on Sabbath, although it's, it's pretty intense. I want us instead to dwell on the Lord's position on Sabbath. Jesus understood that the Sabbath was meant to be a gift to God's people. He says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus understood God's Spirit behind writing this law. And how could Jesus understand God's Spirit behind writing the law? Because He is God. He knew that God didn't institute the Sabbath so that the Jews would be prisoners in their houses one day a week. He instituted it so that they would have the opportunity to rest. And when they rested, they would draw near to God. They would cut out all of the busyness. They would cut out their work, their chores, their recreation. And they would just take some time to be with God. Jesus' position on the Sabbath was that it was a gift to God's people. Jesus' position is also that He is the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the creator of it. He's the ruler of it. He's the giver of it. There is something more to be said about Jesus understanding the Spirit behind this law. And about the God 
who gave this law to his people. Consider in the passage the example that Jesus gives. Here we are, we're going to return to it. and We're going to understand why Jesus talks about King David. Verse 25. And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful for the priests, and also gave to them which were with him? I want you to notice, before we understand the importance of this, within Jesus' answer, he is throwing the Pharisees' words back at them. They say, how can your disciples be picking corn on the Sabbath, which is not lawful? And he says, you remember that time there was another guy who did something that was not lawful? Let's talk about that for a moment. He, he shares a story of another man of God who was highly regarded by these Pharisees who also did that which was, quote-unquote, not lawful. So how was David justified in eating the showbread? Now, there was a law which stated that this showbread in the house of God was intended for the priests. It was only for them. And it's spelled out very clearly, yet David and his men, being very hungry, uh, possibly close to starving to death, go in and take the showbread for themselves. Jesus is trying to explain the fact that David's seeming violation of the law here is justified because David understood the spirit by which God gave the law. Jesus also understood the spirit by which God gave the law of the Sabbath. The idea that the Sabbath was given as a gift to man, not as a controlling factor to, to keep you locked up. Jesus, too, has an obvious divine understanding of why God gave the law and exactly what God expected of His people. Jesus is saying, I'm not breaking the law. I just understand the law better than you ever could. It, it reminds me of uh, the part in, in um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, it's in the book and it's in the movie. And uh, if you remember the... This is C.S. Lewis. It's, it's largely allegorical. And the Aslan, who's a representation of Jesus, he goes to deliver one of the children, Edmund, from captivity. Uh, Edmund had been a traitor. He'd betrayed his family. And when Aslan goes to uh, free Edmund, the, the white witch starts to wax eloquent about um, how in order to do this, in order to free a traitor, there must be blood for blood. She starts to talk about all these laws of the land, and Aslan interrupts her and says, don't cite the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. Here we have, of course, not deep magic, but here we have the law, and these Pharisees, who are scholars of the law, come to the person who wrote the law and said, you're breaking the law. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. I just understand the law way better than you. I have an understanding of the God behind the law that you never will have. As a sinner who stands opposed to God's offer of grace, you will never get this. But I'm not breaking the law. I just know it better than you. And just like David had a divine understanding of the spirit behind the law of the showbread, 
Jesus has a divine understanding of God's law of the Sabbath. This is something that preachers avoid at all costs. I've seen preachers preach through this passage and avoid talking about this because I know their concern. And you can probably already imagine it. If you're saying that there could be exceptions to the law based on the character of God, why don't I make exceptions to the law based on what I think God is like? I understand. People do that. People say, I know God said this or that. But I don't think God would really want that of me. In fact, we see that a lot with uh, a lot of the questions about the LGBTQ thing going on, and people are saying, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't think God really expects that of me. I think there's an exception to law here based on God's character. And I want to say, be careful. You are not Jesus. And you are not King David communing directly with God and receiving revelation directly from God. You are not either of those, okay? So don't go and make exceptions to all of God's, all of God's expectations of you and say, well, I don't think God would be like that. Okay, we get our understanding of God from the law, period, okay? And I'm very glad that we get this explanation of the spirit behind this law. Don't go making up your own law. I'm telling you the truth. I'm being very open and transparent with you about what Scripture is saying, and I'm expecting you to be mature about it, okay? Jesus is saying, I understand the spirit behind this law and God's expectation uh, behind this law is that we would do good as we pursue after the Sabbath. The comparison, uh, as, as Jesus is looking on at the Pharisees and Jesus is showing that his understanding, and he, he, he throws this accusation back at the Pharisees and he says, I stand in judgment of the Pharisees' legalism. I judge the Pharisees. seems that Jesus' indignation toward the Pharisees' legalistic attitudes caused him to double down. That's why he then goes uh, to the synagogue and performs this miracle of healing on the Sabbath day. He could have waited until Sunday. He could have waited until sundown. After the sun sets, it's no longer the Sabbath. He could have waited a few hours and gone and healed this man with the withered hand. He goes and does it on purpose to demonstrate his point. To go and demonstrate the truth about the Sabbath and the truth about who Christ is. The comparison between the view of the Sabbath by the legalist and by the Lord highlights the true purpose of the law for all time. The law was given for man's benefit. To show mankind the holiness of God and to show them their need for a Savior. To show them how impossible it is in your sinful flesh to please the Lord and to earn your own righteousness and how important it was that someone came who understood the law better than you could, who kept the law in every way, in every letter, and who gives that righteousness to you through the cross. This is the purpose of the law. It was always God's plan to deliver us from the power of the law through Christ. We also learn as we compare these that you can't be holy even by adding to the law. Well, I could please God now. I've tried my best to keep everything that God has said, but I'm even going to add some extra laws. And I'm going to be even holier than, than the law states to be. That's what the Pharisees were really trying to do. But even they fell short. Because we know the only one who could ever keep the law in every way and do it with the right heart is Jesus Christ Himself. 
if you've ever tried to be good enough for God, you know the frustration. You know the frustration of failing time and time again, that your thoughts and your words and your actions just don't measure up, and they don't. But Jesus kept the whole law. He was perfectly, is perfectly righteous. And he offers to lay that righteousness to your account. And his call for people to receive his righteousness has been a theme of Mark from the beginning. Believe in me. Repent of your sin and turn to God. Of course, we can read all of that and the question still stands, what do we do with the Sabbath day now? And the fact of the matter is that as you consider the the theme of the Sabbath day and its observance for New Testament Christians who are not under the law and are not Israelites in in a theocracy, You have to consider the whole counsel of the Word of God to see God's view, but we get probably the best piece of that here in Mark. So I want to take a moment to kind of draw some of these pieces together and consider the believer and the Sabbath. What is our relationship to this law, one of the Ten Commandments? What do we do with the Sabbath? I want to start with some points of clarification First of all, we have to clarify that the Sabbath law was for Israel. No New Testament teaching points to the church being required to observe the Sabbath. In fact, we see several instances where the church seems to not observe the Sabbath. Paul even teaches in two places that the observance of holy days, uh, probably including the Sabbath, differs amongst certain believers at this time. And some people observed it and some people didn't. And Paul says, that's okay. That's okay. Probably because the Sabbath law, we know, was part of the ceremonial law for Israel. It was a demonstration of God's special relationship with the people of Israel. We also know that the law no longer holds any power over believers because the pain of the law is gone. We also have to remember, as we remember this point, that the Sabbath law was made for Israel, we have to remember a counterpoint, a balancing point. And that is that the idea of Sabbath existed before the Sabbath law. Where did the first Sabbath happen? Creation. God gave us an example of resting and being with his creation, and we are to follow that example of resting and being with our God. One more point of clarification before we draw our application is that Jesus is the Sabbath for believers. Jesus is the Sabbath. Let me explain that to you. I saved an expression from our text that I almost put to exposit earlier in the sermon, but I've saved it for right now. Think about this expression. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of also of the Sabbath. Yes, we talked about how this does mean that Jesus wrote it, he created it, he understands it, but the wording here is significant because Jesus, is, it seems, is giving this to himself as a title. Jesus is the Lord of light. Jesus is the Lord of righteousness. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And Jesus is the Lord of rest. If you don't believe me, I'll show it to you. 
I'll just read this passage to you. This comes from Matthew 11. This is Jesus' own words. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the Lord of rest. He is the Sabbath for those who put their faith in Him. In Christ, we lay down our burdens. We no longer have to strive for God's approval because God's approval is given to us in Christ. And through Christ, the other function of the Sabbath is that we can draw near to God. Rest from labor, drawing near to God, found not in the law, but in knowing Jesus. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. The book of Hebrews is such a beautiful book, and we've talked about this before several months ago. We talked about how the theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priests. Jesus is better than all of these things. I mean, every chapter is a different thing that Jesus is better than. And the writer of Hebrews stops to say that Jesus is better than the Sabbath. Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10 says, There remaineth therefore a rest, a Sabbath, a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Those who have entered into the rest of Jesus Christ have ceased from their own works. And again, we're pointed back to the example of God in creation on the seventh day resting. And we see that that same rest is available all the time. Not one day a week, but all the time to those who put their faith in Christ. We put down our works and we draw near to God in Christ. In these passages, we see that the Sabbath has already begun for those who are in Christ. The rest. Because we rest from work, we draw near to God. But we also see a hint in both of these passages from Matthew and from Hebrews that there is a greater Sabbath to come. When after all the toils and all the sorrows and all the troubles of this life have ended, we will fully lay down our works. We will fully lay down our burdens. And we will draw closer to God than anyone could have possibly imagined and enter into His presence. There is Sabbath in Christ now and there is greater Sabbath in Christ to come. So we, we've thought about some, some observations uh, for what the Sabbath means for believers today. And now I just want to give you some pointers for practice. Okay, Based on what God has said about the Sabbath, based on our understanding of the law and in particular this law, based on our understanding of Jesus being a Sabbath rest, but these ideals of drawing close to God and, and laying aside our toils to draw close to God, these seem to be universal aspects. What do we do with the Sabbath today? First of all, I want to suggest to you that the ideas of rest and drawing close to God have not passed away. 
though the ritual observance of the Sabbath has ended, these are still good things to do. It is good to rest from our labor, and it is good to take that time of rest to draw close to God. I would also like to suggest to you that an intentional day to do these things is a blessing from God. We know that the early church established a new weekly observance, not on the seventh day of the week, probably for many reasons, but probably the primary reason because Jesus rose not on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day of the week. So we celebrate not a Sabbath, but something totally different. We celebrate what we call the Lord's Day. And there is biblical evidence for the Lord's Day, probably the most striking of which is at the beginning of the book of Revelation, When John says he had his vision, when? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So at least by 90 AD and probably much before that, the church had established this practice of meeting together to rest from their labor and to seek after God on the first day of the week. They understood that though the Sabbath law had been done away with, the concept of Sabbath was still a blessing from God. And that we should rest from our labor and take that time of rest to pursue after God. So we established this thing called the Lord's Day. And here you are, meeting in God's house on the Lord's Day. What a blessing from God to put aside the cares, leave them at the door. (laughs) To put aside all the work, to put aside all the business, put aside all that, and to come and be in God's presence with God's people. What a wonderful blessing from God. And in doing so, in observing the Lord's day, we also follow God's command to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The church is called to assemble. It's a wonderful answer to the idea of Sabbath rest. The idea of assembly is to meet together on the first day of the week, put it all aside, and draw close to God. We need rest. We're finite beings. We need God. We should cherish a day to have rest and seek God. I would say, do everything in your power to be sure that your Lord's Day meets these criteria. Is the Lord's Day a day of rest? Is the Lord's Day a day that you draw close to God? If it's not, you're missing out on a major blessing. A blessing of Resting in who God is, saying, I know that I can put all the cares aside for just one day to pursue after you because God's got it and I can draw close to Him. Now I understand, some people can't do both of these things on the Lord's Day. There are people who have essential jobs that require them a lot of times to be gone every other Sunday, and I get that. There are people who, you're at church every Sunday, but it doesn't end up being a day of rest because you have a lot to do. And I know for pastors, that's mainly the case. Sunday is the big time, okay? It's ministry day. It's a long day. It's an intense day. There are other people who serve very faithfully in the church, and I'm very thankful for you, but your ministry makes it so that Sunday doesn't feel like a day of rest. So I would encourage you, make sure you find your Sabbath rest somewhere. Take time to put aside the cares, to say, I can set aside all this work and all this busyness for just a moment. God will take care of that for just a moment while I rest and draw near to God. 
Be sure you have a day of rest. Be sure you take a day to seek the Lord. So, two suggestions now. The third, we must keep our gaze on the ultimate Sabbath. Because life is toilsome. It's difficult. And the older you get, the more cares you add, the more responsibilities you add, the less your body wants to cooperate with doing the things you're supposed to do. Life is hard. But there is a rest to come. A rest where we will put all the labors down. And a rest where we will draw close to God in His very presence. You need to keep that ultimate Sabbath in mind and be striving, running the race, pressing towards that mark to receive the prize. I understand this was a lot. This message was theologically rich and in no way did I answer all the questions that I posed and hopefully we'll be able to touch on these questions again as we go through the book of Mark and as we go through the rest of the counsel of the Word of God. But I hope this has given you some food for thought. And let me leave you with this thought. Aren't you glad we serve the Lord of rest? The Lord of the Sabbath. Praise Him. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll close in a song. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us an example of laying our burdens down to draw close to you. We're thankful we've had a chance to do that this morning. We're thankful we get a chance to do it again this evening. Lord, would the Lord's day, for those of us who are gathered together, serve as a time of rest and as a time to draw close to you. We thank you that we're free from the law. We're free from its power. We're free from its ceremony. We're free from the dread that we can't be good enough because we have Christ. Lord, thank you for the grace that's offered to us as your people. Would you help us never to forget it? Would you help us never to spurn it? Would you help us never to take advantage of it? That we would be faithful followers of the Christ who redeemed us. As you work in our hearts, as you work in our church, we'll praise you for it because you're a good God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.